I get as a cybersecurity marketer, I get so many emails from organizations that want to sell me contact information. Uh And I don't even know how I didn't opt in to get that information and there's no unsubscribe button. And Mm. going through that experience allows me to understand what security practitioners feel. And now I understand why they hate marketers and salespeople who do that to them. So it's, it's definitely allowing me to become more empathetic to my own buyer. Welcome to Audience First, a podcast for tech marketers looking to break out of the echo chamber to better understand their audience and turn them into loyal customers. Every week, Danny Wolf has brutally honest conversations with busy tech buyers about what really motivates them the things they hate that vendors do, and what you can do about it. Get access to practical information on how to build authentic relationships with your audience, listen to and talk with your buyers, and apply real customer insights to your strategies and tactics. You owe it to the world to unmute your mic. Are you ready? Let us stick you right into the B2B buyers flip-flops. How do you first like to become aware of vendors? How do you first like to hear about them? And who do you hear about them from? Where do you hear about them from? So for example, your peers, word of mouth, community, content, social, influencers, ads, and talk about the different platforms. And you can leave for a side for the moment, how you learn about them, like doing a research once, once you're aware of them, but just how you're initially aware of these vendors or aware of this category. Go ahead. Yeah, so it's initially just understanding and getting reference from friendlies in the network of what's a good vendor to try out, what's a good tool to try out, who's worth taking a look at up and coming before initial evaluation. Right on. And any uh, particular platforms like LinkedIn or certain communities that you're part of where you are hearing from peers or, or Slack groups or something like that? Yep, definitely LinkedIn in LinkedIn all day, Slack communities for sure. I would say that on occasion, there's a good content piece on LinkedIn that I'll see in my feed that will engage my interest. And then I'd read in, read into that specific piece of collateral. And if it's really good, I'll likely remember the vendor. And maybe, maybe I would potentially look at the solution, but it's, it's, it's largely the content and the value that I got from the content that makes me aware of the vendor in the first place. Let's, let's now take the inverse of that question. How do you not like to be marketed to, to become aware of vendors? Like what turns you off and causes you to tune out? Advertisements on Instagram. And direct outreach transactional, back it up, direct outreach on LinkedIn, asking for a, a conversation or not even asking for a conversation, just saying what they do and saying, hey, is this, is this something that you might be interested in? I hate, hate, hate it these days, particularly because I'm trying to build my, my network on LinkedIn. I'm trying to build an authentic audience on LinkedIn. So if somebody requests an invite, but I, I do take a look at who those people are and I'm very selective. If I see that they're, you know, I, you get good at understanding who's going to pitch you and who's not, but sometimes you miss it. 
if I miss that person and if that person reaches out and, and says, gives me the, the crappy pitch, I literally go back into that profile and disconnect. They're out. <laughs> mm, justice. A justice be done upon them. And so ads on Instagram and direct outreach, particularly on LinkedIn with a product pitch or a request to speak to sales, right? But you want to shed some color there on ads on Instagram, why that is and as a buyer? I just, yeah, for sure. I mean, I just want to go on Instagram after my long day of work and I want to look at photos. Like I don't, <laughs> I, I go to Instagram to, to, I rarely upload photos of myself or my family, but I, I go there just to check out what's going on with my friends, maybe check out some cool videos or, or pictures of tattoos or vacation spots. And that's it. I don't want to see any tools or vendors or content on, on Instagram. It's, I'm not the audience that's going to buy something on, on Instagram. I will add also email, email outreach. I get, as a cybersecurity marketer, I get so many emails <laughs> from organizations that want to sell me contact information and I don't even know how I didn't opt in to get that information and there's no unsubscribe button. And mm. going through that experience allows me to understand what security practitioners feel. And now I understand why they hate marketers and salespeople who do that to them. Mm. So it's it's definitely allowing me to become more empathetic to my own buyer. So those are the top three, I'd say. Right on. And so maybe that should give some marketers who are listening some thought about how they do ads on like Instagram versus let's say LinkedIn and even Facebook. Like maybe don't run a boring ad about your chatbot software on Instagram. Like be more interesting on in Instagram, be more entertaining. If you're going to capture attention, you got to stand out and not run a boring ad. Go ahead, Danny. Yeah. I, I think for me particularly, I'm a, I'm a demand gen marketer. And the security space is really hot. And I like to see what companies are up to either at events or I like to see what's going on with regards to their employee centric content or their their community within the company, because that down the line, maybe I don't want to explore potential opportunities down the line. It's always nice to see who's doing a good job with making their employees feel good for potential opportunities down the road. Right. To be quite frank. And I think that's a great indication and a great space to to be able to attract great talent is Instagram through promoted or organic posts. I, I do follow a few, not not a lot, but a few companies on Instagram so that I can take a look at what's going on behind the scenes within mm. the office and, and such. Mm. So that's that's an interesting use case as a buyer mm -hmm. who may be looking at it, potential employers or to learn how they're doing their marketing and adopt some of that. Go ahead. Yeah, no, and I'd add to that. And some something, a great insight that I got from from a buyer about four months ago when I was on a one-on-one -on -one call with them was I take a look at Glassdoor to see how companies are treating their employees because that's an indication of if they're treating their employees poorly, that's an indication, a potential indication of how they're going to treat their customers. Mm. It's it's to me that was one of the most powerful insights. I'm like, okay, well, what could we potentially do on Glassdoor to to lead with buyer centricity and employee centricity, which which in essence go hand in hand according to to this specific buyer. And so 
I really think that's a potential topic you could explore given your you're talking buyer centricity here. So. Yeah, a lot of marketers should be should be asking about customer retention and satisfaction. And if they see that there's unhappy customers and churn and they don't last very long, then that's a good indication that the company either has a lousy product and or a really bad post-sale experience. And that is going to create negative word of mouth and a larger uphill battle. And potentially, if they don't care about their customers, is a good sign that they also don't care about their employees. And so be wary of those glass door reviews. That's a good tip. Now, you, you mentioned, so ads on Instagram, LinkedIn spam, email spam. Now, how do you feel about telemarketing? What is telemarketing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. These days, it goes by a euphemism known as cold calling. I know. Um, I, I, yeah, no. <laughs> I, I don't even pick up the phone to answer my father. I mean, I, I, my phone is always on silent. Mm-hmm. I hate, hate, hate seeing numbers that I don't recognize. I will only answer the phone if it's somebody I know and have a, an established relationship. Look, if it's a vendor that I have a, that I'm in a contract with, telephone is, is rare even, even then. I mean, we're, we're either talking on through email or mm-hmm. we're communicating through WhatsApp chat. Mm-hmm. It's all written communication. It's rarely a telephone call. Only if shit hit the, hits the fan. Sorry, can I say the S word? Only if shit hits the fan is, is there a, a, a call, right? Or, or a scheduled Zoom call, really. But no way. I will never answer a phone call from a number that I do not know. It drives me nuts when I get that. I decline immediately. <laughs> yeah, I think most people are in the same boat. So what percentage of the time would you say that you even take a demo, let alone buy from, let's say, ads on Instagram, LinkedIn spam, email spam, and telemarketing? Very rarely. It's, I, I'll buy if I do the initial research myself and it comes from a reference and I, I do due diligence. I, I think I bought years ago, I think I bought something through Instagram for like 159 bucks and it was like a template or something like that. And I was so disappointed because the template was just not that good. Mm. For 159 bucks, I expected something relatively comprehensive that I could use really aggressively. That was it. I'm buying tools for the MarTech stack that are tens of thousands of dollars, right? So that that is something that takes a little bit of time to to evaluate, to get buy-in, to kind of make the case within within the organization, and and after we've identified the requirements. But yeah, I don't I don't think I've I don't I don't think I've I've taken a demo. Okay, I will say I've taken a demo. And again, this is uh, this was years ago. And the reason why I'm referencing years ago is because when I moved over to Cyber Six Skill, I already knew what I wanted to evaluate and buy because I've done that initial evaluation in other organizations. So that's likely an interesting insight for people listening is I knew already the vendors. So I brought them over to my next company and evaluated them. Years ago, I I, I took a demo with Drift through email, through email outreach. And I purchased them 
and then realized very quickly, even after doing the evaluation and even after going through the demo, that we just weren't ready for that tool at that specific time. And so it was very much an underutilized tool. Mm, mm. And so throughout your whole experience, you so rarely have bought, let alone take a demo from email spam or telemarketing or LinkedIn spam or ads on Instagram. You bought me once ads on Instagram and you bought a lemon, but it was like a $159 template. And then you bought once from Drift from an email. And that was the first time you had heard about Drift was from that email. And then you ended up buying it and then underutilizing it. Now, that was after the evaluation and everything. And so maybe suppose you had been marketed to for some time and had more education upfront before that sales meeting happened and maybe spoke to peers and everything like that, then maybe, maybe that would have, that chance of that happening would have decreased because you would have been like, me, well, not there yet. That, that's a premature thing to do, route to go down. And perhaps the salespeople at, at Drift should have, should have knew that. Maybe they did and, did and didn't say anything. So, okay, now with that, let's pivot to once you become aware of vendors, um, how do you then learn about vendors? How do you do this research? Where do you get that information? What information do you look for? And maybe who, who do you get that information from? So that could be things like, you, know, you mentioned your peers or going to the website and getting pricing and seeing how the product works and trying the product or maybe even buying the product on the website, things like that. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you nailed, you pretty much nailed it. It's it's chatting up with with my my network and seeing who's used it, what use cases have they used the tool or solution for? Is it working well in terms of functionality and capabilities? And then I'll I'll really scan the website and go deep on the website, not only from the product and the feature standpoint that I'll get to shortly, but I really do a lot of digging on the resource hub. Are they are they marketing or are they creating content that is actually valuable, like frameworks or case studies, or do they have usage guides to help show how to use it or or apply that tool to specific strategies or tactics? To me, that's an indication of a company that's thought of, okay, they're going to have a tool, they're going to buy it, and we're not going to ghost them and leave them hanging dry and trying to figure out how, how to use our solution. So I take a look at that, and then I definitely scan the product page, check out the features. If there's pricing, I always like to like look at pricing to understand, okay, is this going to fit in my budget? And it's just a quicker a quicker sale for me right it's a quicker and easier pitch to my to my boss when i know right away the features and the cost and then if it looks all if those if it's triggering on all those elements i'll i'll request a demo and an in-depth demo and come prepared with with questions and if if the questions are answered then i'll be able to to continue and say okay let's get let's get on a a broader demo demo to to talk with the economic buyer who's actually going to find funds if I don't have the funds already, right? Because in some cases, I'm not the economic buyer. Sometimes I can't make the case for for buying a new tool that might look cool or something like that, or might look really valuable and, oh, we need it right now and I didn't know about it, right? So you have to make the case with the economic buyer who actually has pull to move, move things around from a budgetary standpoint. Yeah. So... 
And to the extent possible, how important is it to try the product on the website just to like get a, take it for a spin? Yeah, I think, I think it's important to a certain extent. If, if it's going to be a long drawn out process, it's to me, that's an indication that it's probably not for me. If it's integrating well, or if it's into a sandbox environment, or if it's, and it's triggering on, on all features and, and onboarding is relatively easy and, and low lift for me, then it's, that's great for larger, for larger solutions. But if it's, and if it's a SaaS tool and I have like a free trial, that kind of stuff, I mean, obviously it's easier for me to buy SaaS tools that are lower barrier to entry in terms of price. Right. So if it's plug and play, low price and it's low lift, then yeah, it it would be better to have a free trial. But if it's going to be a whole drawn out thing, not worth it. So, Mm -hmm. and that wouldn't make sense for a free trial if you have to do all this lifting and it would probably won't make sense for the vendor. But maybe a sandbox environment where you have some scale down bits and pieces just to kind of get a sense would be really helpful, if not a full, not like a full blown out trial. Now, what would you say is the percentage split preference for getting information from marketing and marketing's influence on your peers as you go through this learning and research phase? Yeah, the website and from your peers and your community versus information that is gated behind sales and you ha- you need to speak to sales on a demo to get it, such as product, uh, like what the product is, features, to see the product, to see pricing. So do you, do you have a percentage or I would say, what's your percentage split preference? And one way to think about this is how far along your learning journey are you, either from marketing versus sales, pre-sale, pre you purchasing. Go for it. Yeah. So let's break it down because that was those were loaded questions. Mm-hmm. We can go down a bunch of rabbit holes. So to re- let me kind of recap this because I might be understanding this incorrectly. You want to know what the percent split, my percent split preference is for getting information from marketing versus sales. Yeah. In order, order to buy or buy or what? Yeah. To... Those are different. Those are different use cases. Yeah, I would say as you're going through this research phase where you are self-educating and talking to peers and going to the website to get information. So that's that's under mar- marketing's remit. And then you also mentioned, well, there will be when you're ready, if and when you're ready and you need sales help, you'll hit up sales. And I'm wondering, generally speaking, what's the percentage split where you prefer to self-educate and self-serve information from marketing from your peers and on the website? versus having to speak to sales on a demo to get that information where that information isn't on the website or that information isn't upfront, but you have to speak to a seller to get it. So another way, again, to think about is how far along your buying journey are you before, if at all, you ever speak to sales because because marketing has helped you self-educate? Hmm. Again, it depends on the kind of tool you're buying. If you're buying an enterprise tool or a SaaS tool, so it, Let's just for the sake of it, talk enterprise, because that's a little bit harder to to break into these days. I would say 85% marketing, leading, leave me alone kind of stuff. <laughs> I'll do it myself. Give me all the information I need to, to, to learn by myself. And then 15% sales or representative help me out, kind of understand specific use cases, my, my business case and, and see how it fits in, in my context. Mm-hmm. 
and how far along I, I am in regards to it's pretty far along. It's it's okay. I, I gotta need I I need to make a decision. So, but I before I make a decision, I need to I need to validate the requirements. So let's talk to sales because it's not on the website. Right on. So 85% you gain that information or want to get that information for marketing, maybe 15%, particularly let's say with complex products where you need to customize the products based on your relevant use cases and the certain features that you need from sales or just the last mile with with sales. And actually to to a similar question, going back to how you prefer to be marketed to, to become aware of vendors. So the first part of our conversation, let's do another percentage split preference. What is your percentage split preference for becoming aware of vendors because of marketing? And that could be marketing's direct marketing efforts to you. Also their indirect efforts through their through your peers. And that's content, social, ads, events, partner marketing, referral, affiliate, the whole kit and caboodle of what marketing does versus telemarketing, email spam, LinkedIn spam. I do not yeah. want to get any of that. Like hundred yeah. percent to zero. Gotcha. So, so hundred percent. I, I will it's, never uh, buy. I won't. I will never buy from an a cold outreach. I need to understand who these people are. Understand like, I need to see a face behind it, and they need to kind of, they need to understand my my needs. Mm. Yeah. So I, we definitely hear that one a lot. And the takeaway again from the audience from this is like, well, who's doing the, which department in a company is responsible is tasked to doing this telemarketing, email spam, LinkedIn spam, AKA cold outreach. Who's responsible for doing that? And unfortunately that responsibility has been set at the feet of sales development. And so you have this really good talent stuck in this really bad role. And many of them are desperately trying to do marketing that's not spam, but their hands are tied. And so that's why a lot of companies are trying to repurpose them to marketing. And they're the forward-thinking companies. And again, 50% of sales development teams report into marketing. It's a marketing function to generate demand, to generate leads for sales. But unfortunately, it's, it's through spam and it's not sitting well with buyers. Now, oh, sorry, Danny, go ahead. Did you? I, I was going to say it, it has become, there's a stigma and it has become an unfortunate role because, an unfortunate role to be in because the people that have been setting their KPIs are setting the wrong KPIs and the wrong methods to get those KPIs. Yeah, it's the fault of leadership, not of SDRs. So it's the fault of marketing and sales leadership, particularly sales, because sales is the one that advocates exclusively for sales development and beats the sales development drum and not marketing. And we talked about that in one of the other podcast episodes about the reasons why sales drinks the sales development Kool-Aid and also the seven different camps that marketers fall into about sales development. So, so you can go check that out. But leadership or the way that sales development is designed across their goals, metrics and compensation and hiring profile and culture and management style all reflect spam. And so you, you can't have an SDR and say, hey, SDR, go do proper non-spam marketing but we're going to put you in the sales development straitjacket. No, no, no. So if you're going to repurpose sales development to marketing, which I believe you should, then you need to give them, you need to treat them like a marketer and don't give them, don't tie them down with sales development stuff. And so you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't like tell someone to pick themselves up by standing in a bucket. 
Go ahead, Danny. Do you want to say something? uh, Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I'd even argue that marketing is also running shady tactics and and unethical ways to to outreach buyers as well. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. Go ahead. I'm not sure if it's a who should sit under who argument. I think it's how you should, what is your mission argument? And what is your approach and what is your mentality argument? Mm. Because I, again, I work, I work in the cybersecurity space. And the whole reason I created Audience First was because it, it stemmed from a frustration. I was trying to figure out how to engage, under, first of all, understand my buyers, how to do discovery and how to engage them and pull them in, right? Attract attention versus push for attention. In order to do that, I need to talk to my buyers. I need to figure out what are the ways they they buy. What are the ways, to your point, again, everything you're doing here, how do you buy? Where do you evaluate? What make what triggers you to look at a vendor? And I was looking in forums and I was saying, this is how I was looking at like this is how you market to cybersecurity practitioners. This is totally wrong. The way you are doing this, you're gonna just piss off the buyer and you're not gonna scale growth this way. This is not sustainable. And so I'd even argue that the tactics and methods that some marketers and marketing teams are running are not are not scalable, not ethical, not the way things should be done. Hmm. Can you share maybe for the audience, provide some color on that? I think yeah. this is maybe a good good route to take. Go ahead. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, this is also a sales development tactic, but having outreach outreach methods or campaigns if you take a demo and and look at my website and, and give me give me your time i will give you a, a free a 15 dollar yeti or some shit like that right or spewing buzzwords and jargon to try and attract buyers when that is not the way you speak to buyers it only pisses them off it only only adds angst and and friction and problems to an already an already frustrated and problem driven buyer, right? In terms of content, more noise with content and and white papers and 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 all that kind of stuff, booth babes or or irrelevant marketing campaigns at events that have no value to the buyer, right? Teach them something they didn't know at a at an event versus trying to just get fifteen minutes of their time and putting them in a nurture stream that's going to spam the shit out of them and they didn't even opt into that in the first place. Right. So I was, I was on a rant. I want to, I wanted to recap. So we, we were saying, again, there, there's my argument that I'm not sure it's, it's about who sits under which function, but it's how you approach things. What's your mentality and what's your mission? And I've seen buzzwords and buzzwords and jargon that had absolutely no meaning or context to the business value or technical value for buyers. Approaches at events that just really annoy and are, to be frank, distasteful for buyers and and bribes, just bribes. It's just not how people buy today. Bribes for meetings or bribes for demos or bribes for feedback. It, it's just not the way you should be doing things today. And and again, to your point, you should be taking a more buyer-centric approach, okay? How, how do I create value and business value or technical value, depending on who you're, you're, you're targeting, to my buyer? And that stems from, one, 
being genuinely curious, empathetic, understanding your buyer and doing research to to identify the the pain, the need, the barriers to buying, the decision criteria, the requirements, understanding that whole process. It stems from the conversations. It stems from from taking a look at the qualitative and, and quantitative data. It stems from doing that that initial legwork before you even persuade your buyer and sell to them. Right on. Now, maybe let us pivot to two quick questions on your sales preferences. So pivoting from marketing to your buying preferences for sales, which we talked a little bit about. Now, to the extent that you actually need sales' help and engage with sales when you request a demo and you're speaking to an AE, an account executive, do you prefer a single seller is accountable to you and there's no handoff? So you can think of it like an AE-CSM combined or do you prefer multiple sellers and multiple handoffs? And that could be like an AE and then a sales engineer and then a customer success manager and then maybe an account manager. So do you have a preference for when in sales having a single seller versus multiple sellers? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I haven't thought about it, but I, I definitely want a... I want to understand who my go-to is, like who's the one person I can rely on for any question, no matter what, and they'll find the resource for me. So that it could be a multi, it could be multiple people within the buying process giving me answers. But I'd say I'm leaning more towards that one person that I have an established relationship with that I can rely on to give me the answers I need, even after purchase. Like my hope is after purchase, if something happens or if I need some help, I could go back and, and, and talk to, you know, I know who the one person is for, for getting answers. Right. There's this assembly line of sellers that don't last very long. And so you might go through so many handoffs and you have no idea who your seller is because they last on average, maybe 11 months. And so you're just churning through sellers and your main point of contact, which changes all the time. And it's really hard to maintain a relationship and trust and accountability and to have someone who's got efficacy and expertise when yeah. they're just, they're being burned through. So you you make a very good point. And you said a couple things. One is credibility and I'd, I'd add on trust, right? And one case or example that occurred to me just recently this past year, I signed a a, a contract to work with a specific vendor and we started onboarding the whole process, building out content, setting up the infrastructure. The sales representative left, the account executive left, the customer success manager left. And I was sitting there with an unfinished product and there was no handoff to somebody else until I kind of made some made some noise and they said, hey guys, what the hell's going on? The new representative was catching up months later trying to figure out where things where things are within our with our account with our specific product and then just kind of slipped off the face of the earth again didn't follow up so definitely for me that was a horrible first of all horrible experience i didn't release a product that i half paid for right i didn't pay fully for it cuz it's not launched yet and that just shows lack of credibility and I just don't trust that and it's a relatively large agency like a large vendor a reputable vendor I don't trust to work with them I don't think I would work with them 
at least with that specific product line, again, because of that poor experience and they don't they don't have their shit together. And I expect for that premium price for a vendor to have their stuff together and and for a vendor to be able to establish and maintain the relationship with a specific champion within an organization like myself. So that's a huge thing, trust, credibility, and it stems from main, building and maintaining that relationship capital. Right on. And so it's a, it, it shows poorly on the company when your seller is gone or constantly leaves and there's no smooth transition. And if sellers keep leaving, it's like, well, what's going on here with this company? And is this a shady company? And if the talent is leaving again, it's like, what does that mean for customers? Does this company take care of customers? Do they care what happens post-sale or they don't care what happens post-sale? And because if they did care what happens post-sale, then to the extent that sales needs to help with post-sales, which is where sales mostly plays nowadays, it's sales is more about post-sale fulfillment and managing the business relationship and being a main point of contact and helping with implementation, adoption, and success, then that's a that's a big that's a big red flag. And and so that that's when when as a buyer, and especially if there's a lot of post-sale stuff going on, you should be very careful if the, the person that sold you initially, first of all, isn't there afterwards. And two, if your seller keeps changing and if you are doing a big complex post-sale implementation um, and you're trying to drive adoption, you're trying to be successful with this product, you're going to be very frustrated very quickly because you're not getting the results you want as fast or as, or as easy. And that might make you think twice about renewing or expanding, especially since most companies have land and expand motions. The initial sale tends to be a bit smaller. Most of the growth and profit for companies comes after initial sale. So that's a subscription model business, SaaS business. So if you bungle that up, you've just spent a lot of money to acquire a customer and you're probably going to lose them quick and not hold on to them for them to upgrade and renew and refer people to then be able to and get a testimonial case study, all that good stuff. So the, the other question regarding your preference for sales is regarding sales compensation. So as a buyer, um, do you prefer a seller that is commissioned versus paid a full salary plus bonus? And so you can think of it like this, a seller who is commissioned, their income depends on your decision to purchase. A seller who's paid a full salary and bonus at the outset is paid regardless of whether or not you buy. And another way to think about commission versus full salary plus bonus is that commission is half of the cake. It's 50% of their salary that's withheld pending their quota attainment. Whereas full salary plus bonus is the full cake plus icing, just like every other department. So sales is the only department to have commission and quota. And so if you as a buyer knew at the outset, say on the website, like, hey, sales, they are paid a full salary plus bonus. So everything that they're promised, you can think of it as like full OTE, the promises that companies make to sellers, if they hit their goal, they just get paid that at the outset. As a buyer, would you have a preference either way and why? Well, my preference is that people get paid for their work. That's my my preference. I don't want you know, to with, withhold a professional's or, or somebody's well-being. That they need to put food. I understand they need to put food on the table. What my preference is that 
the salesperson, no matter what the compensation plan looks like, will go above and beyond for me to to solve my problem. And I don't I mean, there there likely is a correlation to the way things are done based on compensation package because of stress and anxiety and I need to hit my my goals and, and the quota and all that kind of stuff. There is correlation to behavior and and I, I'd say unethical methods of of outreach and, and sales practices. Not necessarily 100% though. I know salespeople who are compensated based on on percentage, right? Who are well off and don't really need that commit. They don't really need that commission. They're doing this because they like to sell. To sell, they like to work. They have the knowledge. This it's lucrative business, and they they they've been in this game for a while. And they don't hustle. They just do things authentically, and they do things super easy, and they're they're succeeding. There all are also the same type of people that I know who are doing this as retirement, right? I'm technically retired, but I'm doing this because I'm making some side cash. So I'm not sure there's like one-on-one correlation there. It, it depends. But at the end of the day, I want people to make money. And I want them to do do that well. I want there to be a level of integrity in the way that they're they're making money. Yeah, totally. And there are so, it's not to say that commission automatically makes a seller pressure sell. And there's a lot of sellers who, despite commission, do the right thing. And hopefully that's partly because they have a sizable base salary. And so there's less, like right now it's a 50% split between base and commission. So you hope that the base is actually quite sizable and that maybe they, maybe they have finances already. So they're not feeling the, the crunch. And so as a, as a buyer, and you can think about this also in your, in your personal, like for personal outside of B2B, like in B2C services or retail or taxis or whatnot. Do you have a general preference either way between full salary plus bonus versus commission? Mm, again, get paid for the work. I'm not sure. That's that's tricky. No, get yeah, do the job. We'll put get you paid. down as neutral then. Yeah, um, I mean you doing the doing good work, get paid. Yeah. And I would say to, to the folks who are listening, because just just to the, add some color here, every other department gets paid a full salary plus bonus. Are they not doing the work? Do they? And so, some people might say that commission is pay for performance. I don't believe that is the case. Com- commission basically withholds fifty percent of your salary pending an outcome, the buyer's decision to purchase, which is largely outside of the seller's control. And based on many different factors, in fact, sales has a very low influence on the buyer's decision to purchase. If anything, marketing has a greater one. And so the the pay for performance is you pay someone a salary because you trust them to do the job. Plus, then you give them a bonus as an incentive structure. And don't confuse a bonus with commission, which is tied to their holistic performance. And so if someone is not doing the job, then you either remediate and help them or you'd redirect them somewhere else. And so, so you, that's the whole point of trying to hire proper talent and train proper talent and enable proper talent is that, and, and you pay them a full salary plus bonus because you try to attract talent. And so 
just some food for thought for folks who are listening about this and who sometimes might hear that when it comes to sales compensation. Now, maybe to wrap up, Danny, let us take off the, the B2B buyers flip-flops, those uncomfortable flip-flops, and put on your, your marketing hat. And so you're very active on LinkedIn about marketing and, and about buyer centricity. And maybe you can shed light to the audience about your ideal marketing and or sales model generally, or just things that you think people should be doing or things that you think people should not be doing, things that you want to see more of that you wish that maybe perhaps was more buyer centric and you can outline some of those things. Yeah, definitely. And I, I just want to touch on one quick point that you mentioned earlier was, was training and enablement. And it it really pisses me off that organizations aren't doing a good enough job training their sales professionals and marketing professionals on how to understand buyers and how to approach them, how how to sell to them. Because it's just, again, to your point, I, I think it's doing a, a really big disservice to to a lot of professionals who are trying to do things the right way, but don't know how to. And so they need that guidance. And again, organizations that are just stuck in this profit at all cost mindset aren't nurturing their talent to do things correctly mm. to, to really at the end of the day help them scale growth so so i think that's a great opportunity and a differentiator for organizations to really hone in on those on training their talent to to do things correctly which takes me to my next point this problem right of not understanding buyers and not understanding how to engage with and sell to buyers and market to buyers was something that i experienced and and to to this day still experience I'm still trying to figure things out I don't have it all I don't have it all in the books and I think the one thing that I wish I massaged the one skill I wish I massaged much earlier in my career as a marketer and I think as a salesperson as well a salesperson should be working on this skill is learning how to do discovery customer discovery learning how to talk to buyers so that you can pinpoint the challenges, the pain points, the needs, the motivations, the triggers to buy, the barriers to buy, the decision process so that you can more authentically and better create those experiences for buyers, which will then in turn increase your revenue and close your time to sale. So it's all about getting closer closer to the buyer. It's about being customer obsessed. Again, to your point, being buyer centric, being audience first. Audience first is my, it's my my brand name for the podcast and for the rest of the content that I'm promoting. And my hope is that I'm helping cybersecurity marketers and salespeople learn how to understand the cybersecurity practitioner because it's a hard market to sell in. It's a hard market to market in. And and we need to do things differently because these are technical and business drivers that are solving very, very hard problems. They are trying to save the goddamn world to be utopian here, right? And when you're dealing with an audience that is undergoing a lot of stress, that is, that are fighting on the front lines, essentially behind keyboards, sometimes not, sometimes actually on the field, but you have to be, you have to lead with curiosity. You have to lead with empathy. You have to lead with value before you even think about asking for a transaction. You have to establish those relationships, not only with the economic buyer, you have to establish the relationship with the champion within the business who's going to be your your salesperson within that organization. And it only happens through trust and credibility. And to get trust and credibility, you have to meet the person. You have to know who they are. 
you have to establish that that trust and it takes time. And the more marketers and salespeople do these shady tactics and tricks, it's going to take them much longer to close that sale versus spending the time to do the legwork and understand the buyer, learning how to communicate with the buyer, building a relationship, which is essentially going to shorten that sales cycle for you. Right on. So I, I, I went on a spiel there, but that's essentially it. Right on. So we got enablement or training, better discovery for sales and better marketing to establish likability and trust and reputation. And so a couple things there I would, I would add some color to, starting with the cybersecurity space in general, if marketers who are listening to this are marketing into that space. Yeah, they despise spam. They, they despise their contact information being taken from the internet, uh, these contact data providers, and then getting spammed. That's like they spend so much of their time at their own company trying to prevent... <laughs> their con like data from being taken and their contact data is being taken for you to spam them. They are not in the marketing and sales space. So if you're going to spam someone, so it, you, it's a lot less, well, I would say it's somewhat less harmful to spam marketing or to spam sales or to spam sales development in particular, because they're part, they're like, it's like peer to peer in a sense. They're part of the revenue go to market thing. But like, if you're going to, yeah, no, security is, or <laughs> developers are not friendly. They, that's not the world that they live in of marketing or sales or operations. So you have to step up your marketing game. Sorry, Danny, you want to chime in there? Yeah, no, I know hackers who, if you spam them enough, they will hack you and use <laughs> your information against you. Like it's, it's, it's that like, that's hilarious. You know, I have a tool where, where I get security practitioners sending me emails they get. I get loads of examples of bad emails and it's non-stop despite them saying no and unsubscribing they still even if they opt out they still get messages from the same people and the, and phone calls and it, it gets to a point that you piss them off enough times they will use your information against you justice and then another point that danny mentioned was about enablement or training and one thing i'll mention here actually so maybe a slight point of disagreement, but to point out that sales and sales development are the only departments within the company to have enablement teams or training teams. And so I don't, I'm, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a real solution to the problems that sales and sales development is having. I see it more as a really bad bandaid and obviously every department should train their talent and coach them properly. But the problems that sales and sales development are really having is the model that they're stuck in and they're, and, and the model, everything is downstream from the model, the people, the, the process, the technology, the, the goals, the strategy, the tactics, the tools, the compensation and everything. And so you can't fix the, the top of a skyscraper if the foundation is crumbling. So the other thing about better discovery that I'll mention for the audience, my, my, my takes on this buyers aren't, coming into sales calls completely unaware at 0%. As Dan, like Danny, they come in pretty well-informed and serious about buying and have uh, smart questions to clarify some bits and pieces. And so sales is a lot less about the pre-sale. And it used to be that back in the day where the buyer had no information, they would come and be like, what does your product do? What does it look like? What's the price? And they come in and then sales had these complicated selling methodologies like spin or challenge or med pick or whatever to basically like take this buyer through this whole song and dance and down this road of like, let me try to give you, take you from zero to hundred percent on one call. 
but actually the buyer is already doing that before that call, more or less. And so I would say for a salesperson or uh, as a company who the way that you should be thinking about what sales does is to, to what extent do your buyers need in one sales and for what is what do they need pre-sale? What do they need post-sale? And then adjust accordingly. And if marketing is providing most, if not all the information for the buyer to buy, then you have a self-serve ability plus an option for sales. And so, and then adjust your sales process and your sales goals, metrics, and compensation to reflect that. Don't try to operate like it's in the 1980s. Otherwise, it's going to be conflict with the buyer. And it's going to set up sales for failure, which is what is currently the case for sales. So, Danny, I'm kind of curious. So maybe you can share with the audience some of the things that you talk about in your LinkedIn content about how to properly market to cybersecurity. What are some of the things that you are working on today that you think is resonating better for cyber six skill? And like, what are some of the, the things that you're doing today? Or maybe some of the things that you want to do more of or some of the things you haven't yet been able to do, but you want to lean into more in the future to help inspire other marketers? Yeah. I mean, it just, first and foremost, I'm learning how to do buyer research. I'm learning how to extract qualitative data, which I haven't done enough of in the past. And I know a lot of marketers aren't doing enough of it. And a lot of salespeople are not doing enough of it, even customer success, to be honest. And I want to impart that wisdom and that knowledge to other marketers so that they feel comfortable to unmute their mic and, and get access to those insights so that they could do things differently instead of sitting in the marketing cave and pressing all these buttons and making assumptions and going live and wasting a lot of money to just piss off buyers. So that's one thing that I'm, that I'm doing and learning and sharing with, with the rest of the, the world. And it's, it's taking on really well. It's resonating really well. And I'm very excited about that. Second is I'm trying to, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm trying to build a framework because there are enough frameworks out there and enough acronyms out there, but I'm trying to to instill within marketers and salespeople that it's a journey to selling in cybersecurity mm. and it's not a quick journey. It takes time, but if you start on this journey, you will close faster than if you do things the way you're continuing to do things now. I particularly sell to high consideration buyers, so it's a long sales pr process. And it's anywhere between six to 12 months. Sometimes it could go up to even 18 months. And so how do you sustain a, a sales process for, for, for 18 months? It's not through email. It's, it's through, a, through a relationship. You've got you to gotta be buddy-buddy with a person. How do you sustain even a relationship for six months? It's, it's, it's not directly through email. You got you to gotta have a direct relationship with those champions and, and, and business decision makers within the organization. And so that's something that I'm trying to, to build out now. Again, it's not a framework, but it's, it's, a, it's a methodology, I'd say, that's tied loosely to different kinds of frameworks, but it's how I think things should be done. So there's that. And second is like, I'm just... I've, I've been aggregating the shit out of all of the buyer insights that I've been that I've been collecting and I'm sharing it with the rest of the world. Like I, every week I have about 30 to 40 new insights that I'm publishing on my website for everybody to 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 access. It's not going to be free for long because this stuff takes time to 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 create and to segment. But. My hope is that once once people kind of understand 
and read these insights, they'll also be excited to pursue customer research, to pursue buyer interviews and do it on their own. It shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be expensive. It shouldn't be time consuming. You don't have to rely on analysts. You don't have to. There's a difference between market research and there's a difference between customer discovery. The closer you get to your customers, that's your differentiator and a force multiplier. I'll leave it at that. That's that's awesome. And I think Mark, there's a key takeaway here. Lean heavily into speaking with your buyers and interviewing them. Just like I interviewed Danny just now to get their preferences for how they like to be marketed to in terms of how they like to become aware of vendors, what channels they're hanging out in, where they like to get information, how they do not like to be marketed to, how they like to then learn and do research. Um, to what, and then ask about their sales preferences. Like what's the same thing? Like do they, how much sales do they need? What do they need sales for? And then all those types of questions. And then you aggregate that. So you just maybe speak to 10, 15, 20 buyers and do this on a maybe a consistent cadence. That gives you your marketing strategy. That gives you your audience, your positioning, your messaging from which then you can, and, and that informs your tactics so that to make sure that your tactics actually land and that your message is right and that you're that you're doing the right things. And so then the other thing that she mentioned is, oh, and also that you avoid any assumptions. And so you're getting the data straight from the horse's mouth and so not trying to guess. And so, or I would say it's even, it's even better than going to sales or customer success, which you should also do to triangulate, but go right to your buyers, go right to the source. And if, if as a marketer, you are not able to do that, your company says, no, 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 you stay in your cave marketing, make guesses, only sales can speak to buyers. That's a huge red flag because if the product teams can build a better product by doing user research interviews to build a better product, but you can't to do a better marketing engine, then maybe that's an indication you should take your talent elsewhere for a better return. The other thing that she mentioned is having a long-term mindset to do proper marketing to reduce the sales cycle and improve the win rate and reduce your cost per acquisition. And I'm going to throw out some more buzzwords, which I know Danny loves. But the whole point is, is that it could take buyers a long period of time and they need sustained marketing. They need to speak to their peers. They need to learn who you are, how, how your product works, what the pricing is. They need to speak to their co-workers internally and they need to figure out the buying committee. It can take time. The better your marketing is, the better your marketing engine is, the more efficient and effective your marketing is, the better your marketing talent, your, your strategy and your tactics is, the, the shorter that that time will take because your marketing will have compounding yield. You'll have a brand reputation. You'll have more word of mouth in your market. So you'll, you're, the information on your website will be great. You'll, you'll tighten up your messaging. Your audience will be tight. Basically, it'll take that the, some buyers less time. Some buyers will need more time than others. It's not going to take every buyer the same. But you will see quarter over quarter, year over year, your sales cycle reduces. Your win rate improves. You're trying to look at those, those core business metrics that your churn is decreasing. It's negative churn that people are expanding after they or upgrading after they purchase, things like that to know that you are doing a good job. You're bringing in the right people, you're doing the right things and the key business metrics are working. So qualitative data and quantitative. So this is awesome, Danny. Thank you. How can people find you, your, tune into your podcast and get all the marketing insights that you're dropping? Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn every single day. Danny Wolf. I'm on Twitter occasionally. I don't really post there. I like LinkedIn more, to be honest. You could also find find me on audiencefirst.fm. That's audience1st.fm. 
the website's brand new. I hope you all like it. I'm still figuring things out, but pretty proud of it. One more thing I do want to add, if that's all right. Oh, yes, of course. I should One have asked more. you. I meant to ask about closing. No worries. Thoughts. That's me being a bad host. <laughs> no, no, you're all good. One more acronym to throw out there because we all love acronyms. You you mentioned reduced churn. You mentioned some, some KPIs uh, uh, just now. The closer you get to your customer, the more research that you do and, and, and the more conversations you have with your buyer to validate, to do that discovery, to understand the pain the more relationships you're going to build. And as such, the more potential annual recurring revenue you're going to have down the line. Let's say I go and go six, six months to, to 12 months from now, go work for the cybersecurity company next door. I know that I have in my back pocket at least 20 relationships that I could go to tomorrow for feedback. Hey, yeah, I just I want to validate my marketing message because I'm new at this company. Can you take a look at this? Oh, okay. Oh, by the way, this this looks cool. Mm. We need something like this. That is so valuable as a marketer and as a salesperson because you're holding money, potential money in your back pocket just from those from those relationships. So I will sign off with one thing that that sticks in my mind for two things actually. One, Focus on the mission before the money. And two is relationship capital will always bring financial capital. That is something that a buyer told me. And I will go to the grave with that with that quote. That's awesome. And if you think about this in your personal life, you don't win many friends and influence people or win lovers by being annoying. And if you have a good reputation, if you're likable, you develop relationships with people, you have friendships business relationships. And so going back to basically this, she's talking about like having a Rolodex and a network. And that used to be like Rolodex used to be applied to sales, but actually it's more important now for marketing, I would say, because, but, but it's still important for sales, but it's marketers who, if they're playing an industry like cybersecurity can then develop relationships with cybersecurity professionals from which they can then do product marketing or research interviews and like get a sense of, Hey, like I'm at this new company. We're trying to figure out our audience, our positioning, our messaging, and how we should be going to market. And also about the product itself, would love to pick your brain. And and also indirectly, it's like many of those buyers or some subset of those buyers will actually then purchase product too. And so because you've built relationships with them, they trust you, they know you. And if you bring a good product to them and they see the merits of it, then they'll likely purchase of it if it's a good fit for them. So build that capital as a marketer and you'll make yourself very employable as well, because you're well-known in the industry and buyers like you. So you've got a big Rolodex. You'll, you'll be able to cash in on that because you deserve it. So D Danny's details will be in the episode description. Check out her podcast, Audience First. Check out her LinkedIn content. She'll be dropping a new book at some point. Check out her website. And so Danny, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your buyer insights. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And just so everyone knows, I heard about Danny on LinkedIn. So there's a bit of marketing attribution. She's doing good marketing. She's doing good content, social media marketing. That's how I heard about her. She didn't telemarket me. She didn't email spam me. She didn't LinkedIn spam me to come on the show or whatever. It's I pursued her because I thought she would be great for this audience. And behold, she was. So awesome. with that, we'll leave it there. Thanks again, Danny. Buyer-centric revenue yeah. model over and out. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Audience First. If you like what you've heard, feel free to follow or subscribe to Audience First on Apple, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast streamers.